Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Esther one last time in this summer. As we come to a close of our series, we reach now the last two chapters, which is one long chapter and then just three verses. So I invite you now to open your Bibles in the book of Esther chapter 9, and we'll read all of chapter 9 and then chapter 10 up to the very end of the book. Esther 9. Receive this with faith and with love. This is the word of God for you this morning. Thus says the Lord. Now, in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm, and no one could stand against them. For the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread, spread throughout all the provinces, for the men Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with a sword, killing and destroying them. And did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. And they also killed Parshandatha, and Dalphon, and Aspatha, and Poratha, and Adalia, and Aridatha, and Parmashtha, and Erisai, and Eridai, and Vizatha, the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. But they laid no hand on the plunder. That very day, the number of those killed in Susa, the citadel, was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, In Susa, the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and also the 10 sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now, what is your wish? It shall be granted you and what further is your request it shall be fulfilled and Esther said if it please the king let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict and let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on gallows so the king commanded this to be done a decree was issued in Susa and the ten sons of Haman were hanged the Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the 14th day of the month of Adar, and they killed 300 men in Susa. But they laid no hands on the plunder. Now, the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them but they laid no hands on the plunder. This was on the 13th day, 13th day of the month of Adar, 
And on the 14th day, they rested and made that a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and on the 14th and rested on the 15th day, making that a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore, the Jews of the villages who live in the rural towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day for gladness and feasting, as a holiday, and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month of Adar and also the 15th day of the same, year by year, as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies. And as the month that had been turned for them, for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast poor, that is, cast lots, to crush and to destroy them. But when he came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, they call these days Purim, after the term pure. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter and of what they had faced in this matter and what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written and at the time appointed every year, that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation in every clan, province, and city, and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among the their descendants. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail, and Mordecai, the Jew, gave full written authority confirming the second letter about Purim. Letters were sent to all the Jews to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus in words of peace and truth that these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed seasons, as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them, and as they had obligated themselves and their offspring with, with, with regard to their fasts and their lamenting. The command, the command of Esther confirmed these practices of Purim, and it was recorded in writing. King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea, and all the acts of his power and might and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. 
The year is 1958, and the Soviet Union is favored to win the World Cup. They had dominated the field at the 1956 Olympic Games, and their team symbolized the brutal efficiency and fitness of the Soviet Empire with the collective will of a perfect team. Yet, between them and the global dominance was, of course, the Brazilian national team. Yes, for those paying attention, this is the same introduction to last week's <laughs> sermon. And yes, I did not mention it last week, but of course, Brazil won that game. They beat the Soviets 2-0, both goals scored by Vava, with one assist by Pele and the other by Garrincha, our two best players. We would raise our first World Cup trophy of five a couple of games later. You see, I had a couple of very interesting conversations following last, week, last week's sermon with some of you. The point of last week's introduction a story about the clash between Brazil and the Soviet Union in 58 was the Brazilian players' utter lack of awareness regarding plans and tactics, not even knowing how they work. They wonder if, for their plans to work, they needed to run by the Soviets first, which pointed us to the somewhat frustrated plans of Astor and Mordecai in chapter 8. Yet, after the sermon, a handful of you were only interested in one thing. Did it work? Who won? One of you actually Googled the result and quizzed me on it, as if I didn't know the results of every single World Cup that Brazil won. The truth is, we all want to know how things end. We want to know the final score, if the romantic pair will be happily ever after, and if the good guys win at the end. We judge an idea or a plan as good or just plain out dumb, whether it worked or not. Yet, in our lives, we do not always know the end until the end. And we can only hope that our plans and our strategies, strategies will work. And this is where things start to get complicated. Because the uncertainty of not knowing how our lives will turn, will turn out can easily lead to anxiety. And even sometimes despair. We spent the past three months looking through Esther at, a world that, at the world that we live in. And as this book ends and our series comes to a close... There is only one question left on our minds. Do we win at the end? Will things turn out okay for us? Today, as we conclude the book of Esther, we will see that its end and how we interpret that end depends on how we see the end of this life as a whole. The end of chapter, the end of Esther points to the end of all things. And what you believe about the end of all things will change how you see the story of Esther and the story of your own life. 
In summary, we see this morning in Esther 9 and 10, that knowing that God, knowing what God did and will do changes how we live the middle of our stories. Again, knowing what God did and what God will do changes how we live the middle of our stories. We'll see that in three points this morning. First, God's holy war against sin is thorough. We see that in verses 1 through 16 of chapter 9. God's holy war against sin is thorough. Finally, the 13th of Adar is here. The Persians are authorized to annihilate the Jews and get their spoils throughout the known world. The Jews are permitted to employ similar and imposing force to defend themselves and also get spoils. Yet, did we win? It's not the big question in the mind of the author of Esther. He quickly tells us that the Jews won by a landslide in verse 1. The suspense is over. The question is not whether the people of God will prevail. God has been reversing their fortunes since chapter 6 and working since chapter 1. It should be no surprise that they won. The focus here now then is the greatness of that reversal. The powerless overpowered the empire. And the people of God gained mastery over those who hated them. Verses 2 to 10 tells us how wide the margin of victory was. Even the bureaucrats sided with the Jews. We see that in verse 3. Officials, satraps, governors, and royal agents helped them, for they feared Mordecai and Esther. In Susa, the citadel, the capital of the empire, 500 men were killed, including the 10 sons of Haman, the evil guy behind all of this. As we think our last thoughts of Haman, one commentator puts it this way, with the death of his sons, the loss of his position, and the confiscation of his estate in the previous chapter, all the things in which Haman boasted in Esther 5 are now gone, along with his life. And when this report comes to the king Ahasuerus, he seems surprised, startled, marveled. If this happened just here on my backyard, he wonders, he wonders what, rest, what happens in the rest of the empire. And since everything is yellow to the jaundiced eye, as they say, Ahasuerus seems to believe that this is due to Esther's political influence on her people. That's, that could be one explanation of why he offers her another wish and promises that whatever he, she wants, he'll give it to her. He seems to believe that she has some kind of political power that he was unaware of and wants her to be on his side. This is more than a wish to give his wife some flowers or jewelry. And Esther's answer to that final request and wish could be perceived as cruel or political as she asks for another day for the fight to continue. We want to kill more Persians, she says. Yet as we have seen last week, Esther and Mordecai understood 
that what's ha- what, what is happening right here is not merely a battle in the game of Persian thrones, but a holy war against the enemies of God. Esther does what the people of God failed to do so many times in the Old Testament. Even her ancestor, King Saul, she makes sure evil will be destroyed to its very end. No buts, no ifs, nor what ifs. Evil will be destroyed to the very end. There will be no loose threads. We see that in the text itself. First, while Mordecai's edict allowed the Jews to plunder their enemies, we are are told three times the Jews refused to do that. They knew that this was not a war for personal gain, but for the vindication of the God who promised his people they would not be destroyed. They were not in it for the money as some Persians were. And second, at least food for thought. Even if, good, even if God is not mentioned again, how else would a ragtag army of Jews somehow defeat a global superpower if God was not on their side as he has always been since the beginning? The author doesn't say it, so that makes us think about that as well. And this landslide victory right at the beginning of chapter 9 reflects the shape of the gospel itself, doesn't it? Before we can see the actual end of Esther and Mordecai's Persian adventure, we see what God did for them. Isn't this the story of this book? Of how God has been putting into place everything they need to win, even before Esther and Mordecai were even mentioned. Even before they appeared, we already knew they were going to win. And that is, as it is here in Esther, the story of God's people is not one of battling their enemies for the prize of winning God's favor. Quite the contrary. Esther, the book, and Esther, the queen, ultimately points us to Jesus' perfect and total victory over sin and Satan at the cross. The battle of all battles, the great reversal before they could do anything for him. The question then, it's not what will God do? He already did. The question is, what will you do in the face of that? The question that remains is one of identification, another theme ever so present in this book. God already issued the decree of destruction to all the enemy empires that threaten your life and your existence. Will you join the winning side? Or will you still persist in following the rules and the marching orders of a doomed emperor? Will you see through the destruction of evil in your heart as you strive for sanctification to honor what God did for you? Or will you keep letting the empire run 
your life, your heart, and your soul. As most of the text today deals with the aftermath of that battle, we will learn how to respond when the kingdom of God prevails against his foes in our second point this morning. There are two ways to live in this world that we live in. We see that in verses 17 until the end of chapter 9. There are two ways to live in this world that we live in. The battle is won. The work is complete. What do we do then? We do what we do when the work is done and the battle is over. We rest, we rest, and we celebrate. This is what we see them doing in verses 17 through 19. Modern-day Jews still see this section of the book of Esther as the main point of this book. The book of Esther is the story of Purim, a festival that, as the laws of the Medes and the Persians, has not been revoked, shall not be revoked. They should keep doing it forever, and they do. They still rest, celebrate, give each other gifts, give to the poor, They remember that by providence, by Purim, literally, the casting of poor, they were saved from the wicked Haman. In some Jewish traditions, I should add, the festivities include the beating of a man-sized doll identified as Haman for the kids to have fun. Yet, one last time in this book, the author leaves out the name of God. Unlike any other Old Testament festival, this one was not mandated by God, nor is there any direct mention of him in the decree that established it, written by Mordecai and confirmed by Esther. They literally named the celebration festival Luck, Purim. And as someone once joked, you could imagine from what you read in this chapter, a Jew during Purim wearing a shirt that reads, Esther is the reason for the season. Does that mean that they should not celebrate? Of course not. The Old Testament is filled with songs, feasts, and celebrations of God's great acts of deliverance. They received a rest from their enemies. Their mourning was turned into joy. Of course they should celebrate. However, think about that. How could one celebrate such a miracle victory without referring to the one who controls the casting of all lots? And on top of that, how could one celebrate in the middle of Persia the victory of a king whose name is not Ahasuerus? You probably would lose your hat if you did that. This leads to what I believe is the last act of ironic speech in the book of Esther. In verse 25, Mordecai's letter says that when Haman's plan came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan, Mordecai's plan, should return on his head, that he should be hanged and his sons should be hanged. Do you remember that scene when Ahasuerus did that? Tricky question. Me neither. It never happened. 
The question we should be asking then is, which king did that? Dr. Ian Duguid explains, Ahasuerus' name is nowhere in the letter because it was not Ahasuerus that really saved the Jews. And he was not the king whose intervention changed the course of history. God's decrees, written in the heavenly scrolls, were the ones that really could not be reversed. Once again, a crucial piece of information is left out, and we're left wondering. The question we should be asking then to ourselves as we read this text is, do we know and do we recognize which king saved us? This, I believe, is the point of why God's name is never mentioned. Because it leaves the story kind of open for you to read and to think who was in control. And that's interesting to think about which king saved us. Because as Christians, let me tell you one thing that you might not be aware, although I think you are. We still celebrate Purim. We just call it by another name. What do we call the celebration of God defeating his and our enemies and the rest we have in him? When do we remember the one who redeemed us from assimilation and despair, and we celebrate by offering gifts to one another and even money to the poor. If you say Sunday, you get an A on the quiz. This is what we're doing right here, right now, friends, and we do it every week without revoking, without stopping. We tell our descendants, this is what you do and you will keep doing until Jesus returns, we keep doing this. We keep resting from our usual works every Sunday and we gather to celebrate our salvation, our redemption, our allegiance to the true and better King. And as they did, every now and then there is even a meal involved in the celebration. Yet, as I said, the text doesn't mention the king who did what we believe it was done. So you should be asking yourself, are you celebrating the right king? Do we recognize that we are sinners in need of a great king to save and protect us? Or do we gather here every morning to meet friends, have a great time? Pat ourselves in the back for being good, law-abiding citizens. Is that what brings you here every morning? Do we come with thankful hearts because we recognize God has given and God has taken away? Praise be his name. Or because there is some unnamed providential force keeping us afloat? In the end... As you can see, there are only two ways to celebrate Purim. The two ways we see the entire book of Esther. Either God was the reason and the reasoning behind all that happened in this book, 
or the coincidences are just that, mere happenstances, things happen by chance, who knows what's going to happen in the end. But we're still here, living this two-way life under the banner of the kingdom of heaven and working within the empire on the other days. Even if you recognize the true king, you could be asking yourself, how do I live this life? Isn't that the question that we have been asking since chapter 1? How can I live under the empire and still celebrate God's victory? We'll see that in the last point of this series. God will bring about the end to end all ends. We see that in chapter 10. God will bring about the end to end all ends. Isn't it funny? After all the feasting and celebrating in chapter 9, we turn to chapter 10 and we read that a hazardous imposed tax throughout the empire. The tax, death thing, constants of life all over again. We read that his deeds, including the acts of Mordecai, who were written in the book of the Persians. We read that Mordecai, like Joseph in Egypt, was the right-hand man of a pagan emperor. The end. The somewhat, somewhat awkward ending is the ending that puts the entire story of Esther into perspective. Because you see on these mere, measly three verses that one, on the one hand, the people of God are in a very different place than they were in chapters 1 and 2. Mordecai the Jew, Esther, a daughter of Abihail, are powerful edict writers now. Mordecai, as we read, uses the Persian bureaucratic machine for the sake and welfare and peace of his people. Praise the Lord. Salvation is here. Let's celebrate. Yet, in these three verses, we're reminded, Ahasuerus still reigns supreme in his golden throne at the expense of his people. Perhaps just to reassure everyone that it was still business as usual in Persia, after all those reversals and upheavals, he just does what those guys do. He drops the IRS bomb. The more things change, the more they stay the same in the empire of Persia. And maybe still with a smile of celebration in our lips when we read this, we are forced to think, is this always going to be the world where we live in? Why can't we have nice things for celebrating and then there's taxes? You see, the Jews in Persia had peace from their enemies for a couple of days, but they worked double shifts the following Monday to cover the new tax. The celebrated freedom and redemption while under the yoke of a tyrant who's eager to remind them they are under his yoke. 
what they needed, what we still need this day is a new, a better Mordecai. We need someone who eternally and without end seeks the welfare of his people. We need someone who will speak peace to his people forever. And it's hard to think of that. Who would that be without remembering the words right before going to the cross when Jesus told his disciples, peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. Not as the world gives do I give it to you. Let your hearts not let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. As it has become clear throughout the series, the peace that the empire offers is one where you pay taxes for no reason apparent, and at any moment they can come and put you in a harem or make you into a eunuch. There is no everlasting, enduring, irrevocable peace in this world. The peace Jesus gives, to which Asher points to and anticipates, is a comfort we have in knowing one day he will come back. As we confessed earlier today, to judge the living and the dead In all distress and persecution with uplifted head, we confess this morning, we confidently await the very judge who has already offered himself to the judgment of God in our place and removed the whole curse from us. Christ will cast all his enemies and ours into everlasting condemnation, but will take all his chosen ones to himself and to the joy and glory of heaven. You said these words this morning. And this is the ending that puts story and history into perspective. So I have to ask you one last time before you finish this series. Is this your hope? Is this your hope? Is, that you, is this what you are waiting at the end Because this is how the story ends. Him coming to judge the living and the dead. And until then, and up to that point, will you, like Esther, identify with God's people? Or are you just going through the motions because that brings you some cultural advantages, like the bureaucrats of Susa? Do you recognize your need for a savior from the empire of sin and death? Or do you think that what you get from this world will be enough? To those who belong to him, he promises an end that will end all other ends. To be with him at the end will be the end of suffering, the end of pain, the end of assimilation, the end of despair. 
That, again, is the ending that puts every story, including Esther's, into perspective. Because if salvation we can have in this life is the means that we can get through bureaucracy, we should celebrate, but as Paul says, we should drink, eat, and be merry because tomorrow we die. This is what chapter 10 reminds us. But it also instills in us a hope for a better and irrevocable end. And that irrevocable end we can only find in Jesus Christ, our Lord. When he comes back, puts an end to all this misery and suffering, renew all things, fix our broken bodies, heals this broken earth, gives us a new heaven, and comes to be with us forever. And forever we will be in the presence of the true and great King we've been talking about all summer long. From there, we'll look back and see God's providence in its entirety. A magnificent artwork of interlocking threads perfectly complementing each other. In every detail, we'll find his constant, even if invisible at times, presence. Even in unexpected places, like our sufferings, our failures, and our sin. And on that glorious day, when all fears are stilled and all striving cease, when this world story ends, our eternal feast will only begin. That is a world where you should want to live in. Let us pray. Father Almighty, may your glorious majesty surround us, the blessed Trinity protect us, and the eternal Godhead preserve us. Your unlimited mercy support us, your loving kindness encompass us, your favor make us to rejoice. Your eternal truth be our delight, the saving knowledge of Christ strengthen us, and the all-prevailing grace of God be sufficient for us. May the grace of God the Father lead us, the wisdom of God the Son be our consolation, and the power of God the Holy Spirit enlighten us. Lord, our King and Creator, stand by us. Our Redeemer, save us. And our Comforter, dwell with us. In Christ's blessed name we pray and we say together, Amen.